You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we're looking at the link between toothbrushing and cardiovascular disease. Richard Watts talks about his research in Scotland. People believe that the infection and inflammation in the mouth caused a whole range of systemic diseases. And at that time, they removed everyone's teeth to avoid that, that problem. Also this week, the Department of Health has issued a statement that's made some people wonder about the future of NICE. Fiona Godley gets the lowdown from health economist James Raftery. The statement, which is by um, a spokesperson rather than a, a proper press statement, as it were, uh, restates many of the big points made in the manifesto uh, and the programme for government and doesn't really join up all the, the, the dots. Finally this week, Evan Harris may have recently lost his seat in Parliament. One thing that'll keep him busy is his new job as a columnist for the BMJ. Trevor Jackson talks to him about his first column on Wakefield and MMR. So what was going on at the Royal Free that this was allowed to happen? Why, when it was drawn to their attention from Brian Deer's work through the Lancet to back to the hospital, did the hospital say, we think there's nothing wrong ethically? They did concede some of the other points. When the GMC has now proven uh, on findings of fact that this was ethically flawed throughout. But before all that, I have Deborah Cohen, the BMJ's feature editor, who's here with this week's news. Hi, Deb. Hi. So what have we got this week? Well, this week, um, Andrew Wakefield, who is the British gastroenterologist who spotted a worldwide scare over the MMR vaccine, has been found guilty of serious professional misconduct and he's been struck off the medical register by the GMC. Mm, you know, outside, big story. Yeah, it is a big story. And despite all this, there are still people protesting his innocence. But in the summation of the case against Dr Wakefield, the uh, GMC Fitness to Practice panel concluded that erasing Dr Wakefield's name from the medical register was the only sanction that is appropriate to protect patients and is in the wider public interest, including the maintenance of public trust and confidence in the profession. So fairly damning verdict, really. Yep. And we've got Evan Harris later on in the podcast who's got some more about the uh, Wakefield case there. So what's next? And, and there's been another controversy, I suppose, as, as, as far as the press are concerned, in the fact that scientists have reported the first self-replicating bacteria with a synthetic genome. And the a man behind it was uh, the one and only Craig Venter. Yes, we all know him from the Human Genome Project. So is that getting everyone all riled up? You mean there's been the usual scare stories, you know, are we playing God and, you know, are we creating monsters and things like that, as you can well imagine. But on a slightly different note, there have been concerns about patenting genetic information and and whether it's right that the uh, Craig Venter Institute should have a monopoly on a a range of techniques. And I think this will be a a conversation that continues. It's already a live conversation Mm. about patenting genes and, and techniques. Um, and who actually owns it. But but this will be a debate, I imagine, that continues as, as genetic science becomes ever more advanced. Yes. OK, and anything else for us this week? On a, on a slightly different note, but obviously equally important, um, the WHO has agreed a new code to stop poaching of staff from poor countries. There are really severe shortages in 57 poor nations and poaching of their staff poses a major threat to the performance of an already resource-strapped health um, health system. Yes, we heard from some doctors from Zimbabwe about just that, saying how it added extra stress to 
to the already badly functioning health system over there. But, there's, but actually it's gone a step further this time and the World Health Assembly, which is the WHO's annual conference, has called for countries that recruit staff, so UK UK being one of them, from, from poorer countries, to actually fund the training of health professionals in those countries too. So there's a bit more of a quid pro quo um, relationship going on. That's good. Well, Deb, thank you very much. And all that news and more is available on bmj.com. I'm joined now by Richard Watt. He's a professor and honorary consultant in dental public health at University College London. Now, Richard and his colleagues have published a paper online on bmj.com this week, which looks at toothbrushing, inflammation and the risk of cardiovascular disease. Well, thanks for coming in today, Richard. Um, For a start, could you outline for us what's already known about the link between toothbrushing and oral health and cardiovascular disease? Okay, well, this is actually a a long-standing story, really. Um, Back in the 19th century, um, there was a theory called the theory of focal sepsis, which was that people believed that the infection and inflammation in the mouth caused a whole range of systemic diseases. And at that time, they removed everyone's teeth to avoid that, that problem. More recently, the research, the scientific research in the last two decades has looked at inflammation in the mouth and its potential effects on both cardiovascular disease and in particular diabetes. So could you just outline for us what periodontal disease is? Yeah, periodontal disease is a chronic inflammation of the supporting tissues around the teeth. Um, the initial signs are bleeding gums, but in the more advanced form of periodontal disease, the actual bone supporting the teeth become loosened and the teeth literally become loose. Okay, how common is it? The um, milder forms of the disease, as in gingivitis or or bleeding gums, is actually very common. So most people will have some form of gingivitis, some form of inflammation. The more advanced form of the disease, periodontitis, is actually relatively common. The epidemiological data now suggests between 5 to 10% of the population will have the advanced form of periodontal disease. So there's been an established known link between periodontal disease and cardiovascular disease. What did you aim to do in your investigation? Well, what we did was we analysed some data from the Scottish Health Survey, which is a longitudinal study of Scottish adults. And we had a very simple question on frequency of toothbrushing. And what we did was um, um, look at the association between the frequency of toothbrushing and cardiovascular disease events and fatalities, as well as markers of inflammation from a subsample, C-reactive protein and fibrinogen. Okay, so there you're using toothbrushing frequency as a proxy for periodontal disease. Yeah. Is that an established link? Um, It's clearly a pretty crude question, um, but there is some data to suggest that the more frequently people even self-report toothbrushing, that there is a direct link to the clinical periodontal status. So clearly it's not as detailed information, but it's a good proxy for the periodontal health. Yeah, and you just looked at frequency of toothbrushing, not how people did it or anything like that. Purely frequency. Okay. Obviously, there are lots of risk factors for cardiovascular disease, um, periodontal disease being one. How did you account for those in yeah, your well, studies? Well, th- that was obviously important. So in the fully adjusted models, we adjusted for age, sex, social class, smoking, physical activity, BMI, family history of heart disease, diabetes, hypertension. So all the traditional risk factors that we know is associated with cardiovascular disease, we controlled for in a fully adjusted model. 
And after controlling for all of those factors, we still um, found a significant association um, with a 70% increased risk of cardiovascular events. Okay, so that was for cardiovascular events. How about for C-reactive protein and fibrinogen, these markers of inflammation? Yeah, well, what we did in a, in a subgroup analysis of about 4,500 um, individuals, we looked again in the association between this reported toothbrushing and these, these markers and again found after controlling for the traditional risks for inflammation, again, a significant association, again, suggesting a potential pathway between inflammation in the mouth and inflammation systemically in the body. Okay, so this was one of the suggested mechanisms that's been in the, the literature for indeed, a while. Indeed, Can we talk a bit about the sort of causative, is that is that is periodontal disease then causative of this? What we need to be very cautious of, we cannot conclude a causative relationship. What we need to do now are more studies, experimental studies, where we try and intervene with either patients with cardiovascular disease or with inflammatory conditions and see if through oral health interventions we can reduce their risk factors. So at the moment it's an association, a surprising association, but not one that we could establishly call as a causal factor. Okay. Now, if a patient does have periodontal disease, can that be fixed or is it something that's going to be a chronic long-term problem? The main preventive measure of periodontal disease is regular toothbrushing um, with a toothbrush, toothpaste, twice-day brushing is recommended. The other important public health message is smoking, so that if you're a smoker, your chances of periodontal disease are much increased. What's in this for clinicians? Should they be discussing oral health with their patients? recommending visiting the dentist to people who seem to be at risk of cardiovascular disease, what would you what would you say to them? I think at this stage we have to be a little bit cautious, but I would say for, for the primary care community, um, if they're seeing a patient, they should at least consider the potential inflammatory burden from the mouth. And although they probably aren't able to give that direct advice themselves, if they suspect somebody has got inflammation, gingivitis in their their mouth, they should really refer them on to a dentist to get more specialised support to prevent and control the condition. Okay. Well, Richard, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you. And to find out more about that study, Richard's paper is available online for free on bmj.com. Now it's over to Fiona Godley, who's wondering about the future for NICE. Earlier this week... The Department of Health made a statement that has set people wondering about the future of NICE. In response to NICE's decision not to recommend sorafenib, Nexavar, for hepatocellular cancer, they said that they would set up a new cancer drugs fund next April. And they, while reaffirming the independence of NICE and the need for it to act free from political interference, the statement said that there were fundamental failings within the wider system for drug pricing and access. And importantly, it said, PCTs should continue to consider carefully whether there are particular local or individual circumstances that would make it appropriate to fund Nexavar or other drugs NICE has been unable to recommend for routine use. With me today is James Raftery, health economist, professor of health technology assessment in Southampton, who has written a blog on bmj.com about this. James, what do you think this means for NICE? Oh, it's still very difficult to say. I, I think the um, the statement, which is by um, a spokesperson rather than a, a proper press statement, as it were, 
uh, restate many of the big points made in the manifesto uh, and the programme for government and doesn't really join up all the, the, the dots. So there's a lot of um, a lot of interpretation to be done. Do, do you see it as, um, as as being separate to what we heard before the election or is it in keeping with all of that? No, I think it's in keeping. And do you see it as a, as a, as a threat to NICE or as a, a positive event? Um, it's very hard to say. I, I think the mention in the statement about uh, value for money for um, drug prices could be very significant um, because there has been a debate rising out of the Office of Fair Trading report a couple of years ago that the prices of all drugs should be value-based and, and that means they should be based on their cost-effectiveness. Can you just explain about value-based pricing because this is a phrase that gets used and people may not quite understand it. Um, basically, it means that um, instead of accepting the prices set by the drug company, um, the purchaser, in this case the NHS, would assess the cost effectiveness, and if it accepted a cost effectiveness uh, such as the 30k uh, per quality that NICE has used, um, the the NHS would say you should reduce the price to this level in order for that drug to qualify for the 30k per quality. And then it's up to the drug company to agree to that or not. Absolutely. And is this a system that functions elsewhere? In Australia, I think they have something. Um, Australia and New Zealand have have played with this, um, um, but it hasn't really been developed uh, very widely. Probably New Zealand is the most extreme. New Zealand is quite small and doesn't have a drug industry. Can you tell us, James, how the Cancer Drugs Fund that the government says it will set up in April next year, how how will that work? It, It looks to me as though... Um, it it will be a fund to cover those difficult cases. The options are either a fund to cover all cancer drugs, which could have some advantages, or a fund to cover just um, the difficult cases. That would be the ones that have been refused by NICE and also the ones that are awaiting consideration by NICE. And what would be the benefit of having all cancer drugs in that fund Oh, the benefits of having all the cancer drugs would be that uh, any decision to accept a new expensive one would would be at the um, at the cost of taking some other drug out of uh, out of the fund or not funding another drug out of the fund. So that it would be a self-contained system. We would know how much we were spending on cancer drugs. Yeah. And and you say in your blog, and it's a question that many people will ask, I'm sure. Why exceptionalise cancer? What about other conditions? Well, I guess cancer delivers healthy, apparently healthy patients who have a terminal diagnosis and who feel they're being denied. Um, It's less evident with many other diseases. But uh, I think philosophically, ethically, um, there isn't uh, a difference. One of the things that this statement and and the whole approach of the Conservative government to NICE throws up is is this question about local decision-making as opposed to national decision-making. NICE was obviously established to try to create a national guidance that overcame the whole problem of postcode prescribing. How do you see this change affecting where decisions are made and, and how we will pay for uh, new expensive drugs? there's an inherent tension between the central direction and localism here as in many other areas of policy. And um, the problems about uh, having a central direction uh, has been that the the exceptional cases have been dealt with in different ways around the country. And the Mike Richards report brought that out quite helpfully. 
and um, every PCT has an exceptional cases committee and makes decisions. Now, the suggestion is that they're not made consistently and also they're funded uh, uh, out of the general PCT allocation. So setting up a separate uh, fund to cover those would be in some ways a step forward, but it would in turn raise all sorts of questions about how much should go into that fund, um, how, how it should be topped up, and what the incentives would be. You know, do people who get in first get funded and then it runs out of money later in the year? Would, would there be an argument instead of this uh, piecemeal approach to just simply raising the threshold for the cost-effectiveness decision-making from the 30,000 that it currently sits at? Well, in a way, they've already done that because most of these um, controversial uh, drugs qualify under the end-of-life arrangements, and serafinib uh, did so. Um, but the committee considered that even with um, the 25% discount, uh, its cost per quality was still too high. So what are your feelings about NICE's future? Well, I, I think if one abolished NICE, one would be left with uh, the problem of how to deal with this, this issue. Um, we need some way to deal with very expensive drugs, um, a lot of them, and the, the danger that they become the priorities for the health service rather than the mainstream. So I, I think uh, NICE is there, the problem is there, um, it, it will evolve. Whether or not um, a, a, a cancer drug fund will help in the long run is unclear. In the short run, it may divert some of the most difficult cases into a process. So you think it might actually help NICE and, and relieve them of some of these more difficult decisions? It could do. Uh, I guess the, the, the alternative view is that it would be undermining NICE and people will you know, take different positions on this. James Raftery, thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. And for more details on that, James has written a blog which appears on bmj.com. Now, Trevor Jackson talks to the BMJ's newest columnist, Evan Harris. This is Trevor Jackson, magazine editor of the BMJ, talking to Dr Evan Harris, former Liberal Democrat spokesman on science. Evan Harris, you were one of those who complained to the UK's General Medical Council about Andrew Wakefield, the controversial gastroenterologist at the centre of the MMR autism claims, who was struck off the medical register earlier this week. Can you describe how you came to be involved in the case against Wakefield? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that uh, all the credit for tracking down what has turned out to be a stark case of research fraud belongs to Brian Deere, a non-medically trained investigative journalist working for the Sunday Times. But uh, he contacted me uh, because he knew, I think, uh, of my uh, interest in medical ethics. And there was one aspect of the case where he'd got a freedom of information request showing, uh, revealing the ethical approval that it was said to have. And I, I, I frankly think Brian uh, got most of this uh, anyway and would have, would have reached it as the GMC did. But it was quite clear to me as soon as I saw that, that this study, regardless of all the money side of things and the science of it, um, was flawed ethically. You've written in this week's BMJ about the case and about the questions that linger now that Wakefield's been struck off. Can you say what those questions are? Yes, because actually I think the more we still talk about Andrew Wakefield, the the more we miss the point. Because the danger of talking about Andrew Wakefield is to the public, they think that there is a persecution of him, which is not true. And we must be very clear. And also that he's in some way being punished for being wrong, for having a wrong theory. We also need to make clear that 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 was no part of the GMC uh, 
case. And and obviously commentators will want to say MMR is safe whenever talking about Andrew Wakefield, but that gives the impression that that's what he was in trouble for. That wasn't the case. So we need to move away from him and ask why it was that a hospital allowed invasive tests, lumbar puncture, colonoscopy, uh, gut biopsy to be carried out on at least 12 children for which you can only do research on children if it's part of normal clinical care or otherwise in their best interests and it was quite clear as the GMC showed that this was not the case for many of those children so what was going on at the Royal Free that this was allowed to happen why when it was drawn to their attention from Brian Deere's work through the Lancet to back to the hospital did the hospital say we think there's nothing wrong ethically they did concede some of the other points when the GMC is now now proven uh, on findings of fact that this was ethically flawed throughout and why was it that it took so long for the uh, article to be retracted by the journal concerned right are there any other long-standing implications for medical journals or research ethics committees arising out of this case i think there's an argument now for uh, journals to ask to see the ethics approval on the original protocol because that would mean that anyone who'd strayed off their protocol in their publication without telling getting permission from the ethics committee would not be able to publish and that would force them to do the right thing ethically so that would be a hugely powerful weapon and i don't believe it would be too much of a burden for editors and peer reviewers just to compare the protocol with the publication right Going back to MMR itself, Wakefield was shown on Monday with lots of supporters among parents and and others. Do you think the anti-vaccination campaigners will keep going or do you think they will wither and die now? I think the anti-vaccination campaign will continue. It predated uh, Andrew Wakefield and his theory and there are lots of people with financial vested interests in attacking vaccine orthodoxy. And there's nothing wrong with maverick views, but there are people who sell alternative to vaccination. There are people who sell books based on uh, uh, an anti-vaccine approach, just like there was with anti-HIV causing AIDS approach. And we cannot be complacent. MMR vaccination rates are not where they need to be because this will have a long tail. And there will be more vaccine scares. There are attempts to do this, still attempts to do this over the cervical cancer vaccination. We, um, We always have to be on our guard, I think, and there's still a big effort to be done to reassure people that vaccination is appropriate because you take a healthy child and you hurt it. That's how parents see it. We have to understand that, and that's why it's always going to be a difficult case to make, but one we must make for the sake of public health. Now, you entered Parliament as a Liberal Democrat MP in 1997 and soon gained a reputation as an advocate for scientific rigour and evidence-based policy. Now that you've lost your seat narrowly in the recent general election, do you worry that science will lack a strong champion in the House of Commons and that unscientific woo, for example, homeopathy and other ideas like that, will gain ground? There were a number of people that I worked closely with, and indeed the new uh, Lib Dem MP for Cambridge, Dr Julian Huppert, uh, very much understands the work I did. Um, But there is a worry because I was only scratching the surface of some of the non-evidence-based policy in many areas, not just in science, but in in healthcare policy as well. So there's still the work to continue. I'm hoping that we can overcome the not so much the lack of scientific scientific or medical qualifications of people in Parliament, though that is a problem, but the the inability or the failure for policymakers, that's MPs and those who advise them, to understand, for example what the difference is between good evidence and rubbish evidence is, because people will assert opinion and claim that it's evidence, that whether they understand what peer review does. The whole nature of the scientific method 
Okay, and you've agreed to write a regular column for the BMJ, and we look forward to hearing from you what you have to say in that. Evan Harris, thanks very much. Thank you. And Evan's first column is in this week's print edition of the BMJ. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be looking at the link between IQ and attempted suicide. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.